Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 61 of the Speaking Club podcast. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone in the US. I do think it's ironic, though, that a day that's spent celebrating blessings with the people you love is immediately followed by one where you'll punch someone in the face for a TV. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching, and business success. And now your host, Sarah Archer. Welcome to show number 61. Thank you so much for joining me. I know how precious your time is and how many other great shows there are out there. So it means a lot that you've chosen to spend your time with the Speaking Club today. Okay. So I met this week's guest, Joanne Lockwood, last year at a speaking event and she immediately struck me as someone with a great sense of humour. And in this show, even though we're talking about a journey that's been difficult and challenging for her and continues to be so, that sense of humour still shines through. And in her own words, she's traded being part of the most privileged demographic in society to becoming part of one that many people will either stare at or ignore do their best to ignore. And she's refreshingly down to earth and pragmatic about her transition from male to female. And I can see why she's winning hearts and minds with her speaking. Her story is fascinating and the strategies that she uses in her speaking are great for all of us to use. But before we cut to the interview, I just wanted to mention quickly that I'm doing some live training on how you can use a simple six-step story-led marketing strategy to create a pipeline of your dream customers and clients. So if you're struggling to make your business stand out and grow, then you'll definitely get value and ideas from this class. So you can find out more about it and book your space at saraharcher.co.uk slash free training. And that link will also be available in the show notes too. Cool. Well, let's head over to the interview. Just quickly to say, Joanne's a little quiet in the first minute, but please bear with as the volume does increase. And I'm sure you are going to enjoy this interview. So Joanne Lockwood, welcome to the Speaking Club. Thank you for coming on. Oh, hi. Yes, my pleasure. It's great to chat to you. Good. So um, first question, and I, and I, it's a question I ask all my guests, and I think in your case, it's going to be uh, a big question. Your, your journey. Now, there's two types of journeys. Obviously, you, your life has transformed in many ways, but mm. um, and, and you obviously are speaking now. But can you sort of tell me about your journey and your sort of life story to, to where you've got to today? Yeah, I suppose in a nutshell, without uh, boring the listeners, I uh, kind of knew from an early age, back yeah, when I was six, seven, or eight years old, and into my early teens, 10, 11, 12. So I, I knew there was something different about me. Back in the early 70s, there was no internet, no way of putting a, a name or a label to how I felt. Uh, I came from a very average middle-class family in Portsmouth. There was no uh, massive party circle of friends. So I had, I had no, no outlet or no other people that I could really talk to. So I guess I just buried it and submerged it for many years of my life and got married at the age of uh, 22, having spent a couple of years in the Air Force. And did what most people do when they get married. Just bought a house, settled down, had a family, two wonderful children, uh, a daughter and a son. And then I suppose over the years, as uh, you start thinking about it, the urge doesn't go away. It becomes a bigger part of your life. T- technology, internet, websites, uh, all came along. There was more information. I suddenly started to realize that I wasn't the only one that felt this way. And then with the advent of Facebook and other sort of like meet me type uh, websites where people can share and collaborate, I suddenly realized that I was not the only one. I suddenly realized that everybody else's thoughts in their head were very similar to my own and the, the stories were very similar. So I, I took the brave step one day of actually going out and meeting other people in a local pub and to her credit, my wife came with me. And then I, I, for the first time people had met me as me and I'd met other people and it was kind of normal it was kind of okay and all of that mad panic in my head about I was strange and weird and a fetish or sort of thing it all passed and suddenly I, I, I got acceptance and that's kind of where really the discovery came along that it it took 40, 48 years of my life for that to happen uh, and once it did I, I suddenly started realizing that this is what I've been missing all my life 
Wow. And so, you know, you mentioned that your, your, your wife came with you. Had you sort of, I mean, I guess you carried it inside for a long time. Had you opened up at some point before that this was how you were feeling? I, yeah, I shared it with my wife probably, probably late 2012. So that's what, six years ago, six and a bit years ago. Um, and it, at the time it didn't really have a name. It was just something I did at home alone um, for the inside of me that I didn't share publicly with anybody. And one day I, I kind of just told her and the, it wasn't, I don't think she overreacted. It was quite a, a big blow, but it wasn't something that she went, oh my God, how am I going to cope with that? It was kind of, okay, fine. Okay, let's talk about it. And I said, I explained how it always felt. She said there's no signs and no obvious um, clues. And at that time, I, I, caught, I suppose I would just class myself as cross-dressing. I, did, I didn't have any ambitions or desires to, to make significant life changes. Because for me at this stage, it was kind of, I still hadn't figured it all out. But then as I say, my wife took me to, this, uh, to a local trans group meeting in a pub. And from there, I met other people. I went away for weekends in Blackpool and Manchester and Brighton places just, just to be myself. And that must have been like a massive relief. I mean, just, you know, it, 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 even just to tell someone about it, having that bottled yeah. up for so long and like all of those negative feelings that you were having about yourself. Did you just sort of accept that there was that part of it you had to sort of keep locked away or did it have any impact on your life you know, did it show up in any way or stop you from doing stuff, um, you know, before you were able to sort of, you know, bring it out into the open? In a way, it, it, it changed one set of problems for another. Right. So whilst I'd now was able to share who I was with people, it then introduced other, other pressures because now people were meeting me. I now had the pressure of, of anxiety about did I look did I look okay if I was going out in public now I had to sort of had this anxiety of people staring at me or, or not treating me seriously so I had this whole set of new issues in my head whereas if when it's just me on my own at home you don't tend to deal with or worry about all this so yeah it was in one way it was, it was liberating but in another way it opened up a whole new set of challenges which took a long while really to get my head around um you internalize a lot of these fears, a lot of these, your own phobias, and they do hold you back. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, yes, in one way it was, it was very liberating, in the other way it became very scary. Yeah. Because uh, as you start to open the box, you, you feel yourself being drawn into it, and so the more and more you get, you get drawn into it, the, the less control you kind of have. The genie's sort of out of the bottle, isn't it, yeah, I guess? It yeah. Uh, and once you've... Uh, once you've had a feeling and taste of who you are and you start to believe and, and start to experience that this is somebody you can, you can actually, this could happen, it becomes consuming. And once it becomes consuming, that obviously then has a knock-on effect to people around me, my wife, my children, uh, my friends. And it, it took a long while to actually go further and become public with it. So I, I suppose this was, I first told my wife in 2012, I had my first evening out as such in 2014. And during 2014, I met more people, 2015. Uh, I suppose I I, I I was working away a fair bit. I got the opportunity to sort of live a double life in hotels and around the country. And then in 2016, it became, you know, the, the box broke. There was nowhere putting put back in, it back in the box. And I kind of went, public with it in, on Facebook, um, <laughs> middle of middle of 2016. Wow. Of course, once you do that, it, it then transfers what was a private thing between my wife and I and my and, and my friends to a very public thing where I'm telling my wife, my children, uh, my parents, or my friends, or my work colleagues, all kind of had, all that became real. Uh, you can't be a bit out. You can't okey-cokey, if you like. You <laughs> it's not Brexit, is it? <laughs> no, it's not, no, you can't have a hard Brexit or soft Brexit. Uh, but then, yeah, but other people do have the choose to uh, to be gender fluid or non-binary. So it's it just in my case, I didn't feel fluid. I felt this is who I am and this is who I've always been. 
And I didn't want to be two people. I didn't want to have two personalities or two personas or two views of the world. I wanted just to bring these two separate lives to become one again and just live that life as one person. And that, that was the challenge to try and mix this oil and water, this, this old male life with my new current female identity. And trying to blend that together was really, really tricky. Um, a lot of people, including my children, still struggle with that. Yeah, because there's, I mean, there's no manual for, 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 for living life, you know, in any gender, but having, you know, to, to pull those two things together. And I, so I, because at that time, because you had your own, I think it's an IT company, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. yeah right. So it's, I mean, it's more and more in, you know, becoming, I guess, more mainstream, although people, you know, my, my background is in, in HR and I know a lot of HR people and I know you've recently spoken to an HR conference, but even HR people themselves struggle, you know, and I think part of it is a lack of exposure, you know, personally to it, but a lot of people struggle. How, how did that sort of, you know, was your personal community and then the wider community when you actually, you know, came out on Facebook, did you find it was mostly supportive or did you have some negative reactions to deal with as well? I, w I would say almost exclusively my, my experience was positive. Good. So my, all my friends, they, they, I mean, I'll be honest, they looked at me, they scratched their head and went, <laughs> they shook it and went, I don't get it. it, it I, we don't get this. You know, it's, we're, we're not, we're, we're not, we're not struggling with it. We just don't get it. You know? So I spent a lot of time just having coffee with people, just talk to them, doing Q and A. I'm, saying, I'm just shrugging my shoulders going, well, I don't get it either. It's just, it's just there, you know, and I had to. And they go, oh, okay, well, you're still our friend, so our mate. That's fine. If that's, this is who you are, we still love you. You know, you're still, you're still, you're still a good person. We still had great times together. Okay, fine. You, you look different, sound different. That's cool. Yeah, let's do it. So on the whole, most of the people have treated me in that way. Uh, there are people I've lost contact with. But not in a, in a negative way. You just drift apart. You know, when you leave school, you lose half your school friends. When you leave college, you leave, lose half your college friends. Because you do different things. I, I now don't do the things I used to do. And if, if my old friends are still doing those things, I don't want to do it. Or I don't get invited because it's not what I do. Yeah. So you just drift apart. You, you, so I, I form new friends, new relationships with uh, business colleagues in a, different, in a different life. And I've still got... Uh, the friends that matter because those are the ones that that want to keep in touch and those are the ones i want to keep in, they want to keep in touch with me so yeah it's so but predominantly yeah it, it has been a i wouldn't say an easy experience a smooth experience for me and i i appreciate that not every trans person has those experiences but i do i did get it when you, you said about hr professionals and people people in general yeah in employment in work because people who don't or who are not trans don't have any point of reference. Yeah. You can't walk in someone's shoes unless you have a feeling of what those shoes look like. And when when you're not trans, you're cis, this is the opposite of trans, cisgender, you don't have any any way of, of, of trying to understand it. You know, mm. people say, How how can three dimensional beings understand a fourth dimension? All they can ever do is see the shadow. Uh, and a two-dimensional being can never understand a third-dimensional being because they suddenly appear out of nowhere. So in the same way that if you have not, you've got no point of reference, how can you understand what it's like to have this torment in your head? People then say, well, okay, because I, I don't understand it, therefore you must be making it up. I don't get it. I can't, I can't relate to it. I've got no point. But it's really, it's no different to being colorblind. It's no different to being left-handed. It's no different to having... Uh, anything subtly different about you inside that you can't see from the outside. Uh, it's just my brain and other people's brains are just wired up differently, and that's fine. Yeah. And I like to say to people, well, you don't have to. You don't have to get it. You just have to go. Fine. Okay. Yeah. I'm cool. Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, I mean, a question that I'm just sort of talking to you has made made me interested in you talked about two two lives you know i guess is it how much of you know because you've experienced or both sides of that fence how much of your 
identity, your own sort of self is tied up with gender? Because you said there's things that you used to do that you don't do. Um, was that because you had, you know, felt like you had to do them because of the gender that you were, or you just, you, you know, your life is trans, you know, in making that transition, you know, things about what you want and your personality have changed. I, I'm, you know, I think that's really, it was really interesting. You sort of made that sort of two lives thing. Just mm. wanted to ask you about that. Well, I mean, simply put, the, the crowd of people I used to hang around with, um, predominantly, was uh, sort of, kind of a rugby club male type environment with uh. great friends, uh, great people. Um, but a lot of it involved hanging around at the pub or going on stag weekends or uh, weekends away, <clears throat> which it was okay. I didn't hate it. I didn't, it wasn't like I was sitting there crying inside all the time. It was just, I just found the conversations tiring after a while. Uh, and now, the last thing I want to do is go on a stag weekend with a load of blokes. <laughs> uh, and people say to me, well, why not? I said, well, would you want to invite your wife along with you? And they go, well, no, I wouldn't. Well, well that's why. Because I don't really want to do that. And I'd rather have a night in playing cards against humanities and drink Prosecco. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so maybe I'd a night in. Um, well, if I want to go shopping, I want to hang around the clothes shops. Or I want to look at makeup. Or I want to look at dresses. Or I want to... Uh, it's just a different outlook on life, and the, uh, and that is more aligned to who I feel I am, and it, it's what makes me happy. You know, I I I, I don't look at gadgets; I look at handbags. And, <laughs> and is I that mean, something yeah. that's always been there? Like when your wife said, "Oh, we have to go shopping," but like before you transitioned, you were never like, "Oh no," you were like, "Yeah, let's go." Or is well, that changed? I, I was. No, I was a bit like that with my wife, but the problem was is that I found that very frustrating because she's doing all the shopping and oh. standing around. And of course, then I, if, if you look too interested, you kind of get a bit nervous about you looking too interested. So I, I, I kind of found it frustrating in a way that uh, I was I was going shopping, but you know, looking but we not touching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Occasionally I'd hold a dress up in front of me and, and subtly sort of in front of the mirror sort of whilst offering it to my wife or something. <laughs> playing with the bang the jangles and the bangles and the shiny stuff and uh and then so sort of oh these are nice or i like these earrings sort of thing these these, these will look good on me you <laughs> uh, yeah oh, it's um, but it, it's, it's it's not just about clothes and socially what you do it's just it's that i just feel so much more comfortable being treated as i've always wanted to be treated you know in, the, in those days when i was living two lives it gets very confusing, you know. One, one minute people are calling you sir, one minute they're calling you madam, and then when you're dressed as sir and people call you sir, you think, oh, oh, it's horrible. It just feels feels so awkward, and I, I can't I can't explain the feeling unless you've ever been called sir. If you, yes. If you've ever been called sir, you don't know what that is like, or maybe you get the same trigger if someone calls you mate or guy or something. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or even if they call you love, it's an appropriate sort of like language. And you yeah. know, I don't, I don't like that. It's, it's that kind of feeling. I often say to people, you know, because when we talk about impact versus intent, you know, I didn't intend to hurt you, but the impact was you did. Uh, and I say to people, you know, if you if you walk into a shop and out of the blue, someone just leans over the counter and smacks you around the face with their hand, what are you going to do? You're going to go, oh. Uh, what would you do that for? Why did you, what, why did you do that to me? Uh, and try and put that in the same context as somebody saying something to you with words. It's the yes. same impact of hurt with with words instead of physical. Yes. Uh, I often say that you know, if people, if people struggle with that, I say, think of the worst word in the world. Uh, there are lots of swear words we can all think about. And if someone calls you one of those words out of the blue in a shop, you go, why did you say that to me? And you'd be telling people for weeks, I was in the shop this morning and they called me this when I walked in. How awful is that? And we go, oh, that's terrible. And that's the same feeling I get if I'm called he or, or sir or mate. It's just that, why did you say that to me? What, what, why did you need to do that? Why did you, why did you go out your way to hurt me? Yes. Oh, it's only an accident. Didn't mean to. So the intent wasn't to hurt, but the impact was it did. And that's that's kind of what happens where people maybe don't engage their their 
their thinking brain they're still relying on this sort of like uh, their very fast reactive sort of brain in these things and if people can slow down their thinking and they go actually no right okay i see this i get i get it so rather than say hello sir just say hello or good morning yeah. how are you yeah. doing so, yeah. yeah uh so often you can head off a lot of it just by by neutralizing or neutering your language and you don't need to use gendered language all the time yeah no that's absolutely true and and so you so you had your it company you you came out publicly how because obviously you've got a different company now you do something different today how did that transition happen and maybe just tell me a little bit about the company that you run today well as i was going through my transition process i i decided that i couldn't handle coming out of work i was a co-owner i had business partners for a small business as you can appreciate within small business it's tight cash flow margins making a profit bumbling along it's a it's a day-by-day -day, month by month struggle and as a an employee of that business i was also an employer of that business so i had to, I had to take me from an employer's perspective and i decided that it would be very difficult for our business at the time to to, to cope with me you know i, I couldn't just think of itself so i had to think about my income their income the business everybody else's jobs and livelihood and i decided that i just couldn't face that a coming out having to explain it to everybody and then the disruption to the workplace and all the customers and clients so i bottled it um but that was at the point where i was going through a lot of turmoil personally so my performance wasn't great i was I was I, wouldn't, I was never depressed, but I was certainly struggling to get out of bed some days. And I guess at some point, my business partners must have sussed something was up. Uh, I didn't, it, even though I was, I was, I was, I was fairly out everywhere else, but not at work. It, it, it was social media, and it, it, it probably wasn't a huge secret. And one day out of the blue, they offered to buy me out, which I, I just said, yeah, let's, let's do it, let's talk. Yeah, so we uh, haggled a bit agreed terms and uh, I sold up January February last year so that's 2017 isn't it yeah so beginning of, beginning of last year I sold up I spent March April and May thinking OMG <laughs> uh, I've got some money for the sale uh, which will last me a couple of years but it's not enough to retire on I was never going to get rich out of it it's a bit like a, bit like a reasonable redundancy package uh, I thought, what am I going to do now? I, I, I really had no idea. I signed a non-complete course, so I, I was out of IT completely. I thought about doing some cybersecurity work, and I thought about doing some GDPR consultancy. And I just thought, God, this sounds so boring. <laughs> <laughs> do I really want to do this? And when I talked to people, they, they just said to me that uh, my passion was always around diversity, inclusion, and promoting trans awareness. Uh, and it, it is. It certainly is. And it was very much at the time. And I just kind of decided that if I could make someone else's life easier, someone else's family stick together better or, or give somebody the belief to do something. Because you know, the manual about being trans, you know, we talked about there's no manual to view gender. Yeah. If you get the manual off the shelf about being trans, you know, you open up says people are going to laugh at you. They're going to, you're going to be humiliated. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lack promotion. You won't be able to get another job. Your, your, your family are going to leave you. You'll, you'll be unemployed. You'll be on the streets. You'll lose your house. And you're broke. And everything you once valued is all gone. And I said, well, I don't like that menu. That's a horrible menu. You <laughs> <laughs> throw that one away. So, so I decided that I, I didn't want to play that game. I didn't want to be the victim. I didn't want to to have that thrust on me. I thought, well, I've got a, I've got a fairly strong mindset. I, I, I've got a lot of self-belief. I've got a lot of confidence. I've got a great network of friends all over the country and the world from my previous life. So I just decided, let's go for it. So I, I, I went to a, it was a workshop one evening in Portsmouth and uh, run by who's, someone who's now a friend of mine. She was doing a presentation on disc profiling and, and HR and various things and and so I thought she was really good. And but I said, as I was sitting there thinking, yeah, she's really good, but I could do all this. She didn't tell me anything new. I thought, well, I've, I've, been in, I've been in the business world long enough. I've been running businesses long enough. Everything you said was brilliant, but I, I, you know, I could certainly knock up my own thing. 
And someone asked the audience said to her, how do you become a public speaker? And she said, well, you just put it on your LinkedIn profile and go for it. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, that's quite a flippant response, but in essence, why not? You know, I, I already knew I could speak in, in my previous life. I was the national president of Round Table, which is a 90-year-old men's club. Uh, and that, that role led me to travel the country and do after-dinner speaking. So I, I knew I could be adaptable, I could write a speech on my knee, I could entertain, I could bring people in the room into the conversation, crack jokes, be witty, network, you know, all those sort of things. So I knew I could talk. I just wasn't sure I could stand up and address and talk. With my <laughs> yeah, my mind's going, is anyone gonna, you know, if I get on stage, is anyone going to take me seriously? They're going to get laughed at. Um, it's like, oh, crazy trans person sort of thing. So I, I joined Toastmasters, which is a speaking club. And uh, I also joined an organization called Professional Speakers Association, the PSA. And I remember the first time I, I, I stood up in public and spoke with a prepared speech was at the Professional Speakers Association. They had a, a, a new joiners competition. So everyone gets five minutes and to compete. And I remember preparing this, this five minute and standing up on stage and I felt so anxious about A, my voice, B, how I looked, and C, the speech. And I was, I, yeah, people were probably kind to me, it wasn't that bad. But I felt like I'd really let myself down badly. What I spoke, it, was just, it just wasn't me. I was, I was too false. It wasn't fluid. And I thought, right, that's the worst it's ever going to be. It's gonna, from here, it's going to get better. So with Toastmasters, I just practiced talking. I, I went out of and just did, um, anyone who wanted to speak, I just went out and spoke. I just went and worked on my material, went out there and started speaking. And within a month or so, people said, wow, you're pretty good. Because every time someone said, oh, you should try this, I went, oh, okay, let's try this. And I had an opportunity to go back to professional speakers and do another talk in that October. And I was, I was, I was definitely twice as good or, or a lot better, but I still... It still got some feedback that maybe I didn't project my voice and I was a bit talking to the front row, not the back row. I spoke too quickly and not pausing enough. Uh, so I took all that on board and I started doing a few gigs in November last year. Then I got a bit of a break in April this year where someone referred me, someone wanted to speak at a talk at an HR event. So it's called True, TRU. It's like an unconference that I run all over the world. And introduced me to this guy called Bill Borman. And Bill said, yeah, sure, come along, host a session, talk about trans awareness. And, and before I knew it, I had a room full of people. And it, was, it wasn't a prepared speech. It was almost like a, a facilitated workshop, roundtable, winking it type thing. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly I, people go, wow, that's fantastic. I thought, oh, okay. And they said, oh, no, I've been invited to Amsterdam to talk. And then, so the momentum kind of grew. And I, I got confidence. I got a network. And people built, built it up. I started becoming... My self-belief, my imposter syndrome started fading. I went from thinking, well, what do I know? You know, just, just actually, whatever I do talk about, people seem to, it, <laughs> it I'm, a, I'm a philosopher and a thinker, if you like. Um, uh, yeah, put a lot of thought into stuff. And yeah, before I knew it, I was, it, it started to happen. You know? And so by the middle of this year, I was, I, I'd done another couple of gigs at a big conference in London called Wreckfest, which is like a, a glass of the recruitment world. Uh, I was on the, one of the main stages there and did an hour. And I had people coming up to me after after a Q and A session I ran, I had people coming up to me shaking my hand, going, Wow, that's inspiring, made me cry. So like, oh make him cry. Good. Emotional connection we got it. Yeah. And I did a couple of other things. And before long people are phoning me up and people started to email me. I've I've i to get traction. I've, I've I've had an article in HR magazine the other day. I was in People Management magazine uh, I'm doing um, podcasts like this with other people, with yourself. Uh, I do guest um, articles for some quite large recruitment companies now. And so people are obviously coming to me because I have something to say, which is, which is fantastic. And I know that some, some trans people I know read this stuff and it resonates with them. And I feel like we're actually getting some penetration of the message out there now. And it's, yeah, it's, it's it's brilliant. I can pinch myself. Can you pinch myself? I think, is this real? Is this? Uh... I think. I think it's. I mean, just from talking to you, though, I think one of your strengths is that you are. It's just something you feel like it's just something that's happened to you, and you've been on a journey. Like I love the way that you said people have got no reference point. 
you don't even understand it you're you're kind of on a journey yourself to see how things turn out and that's we do you know like you said it's about you know people sometimes are stupid we're stupid in what we say and the way we say it and we don't think you know but just making people sort of you're not judging people you're just telling people how it feels and I think that's really you've got a really refreshing you know and and sort of light-hearted you know it's it's serious but you're not making it serious if that if that you're not making people feel bad about it which is refreshing I think and that's just just there's not a question there so much as an observation I love the way you, what you said there was, I'm not telling people, and that's exactly how I want to do this. I, I'm, not the, I'm, not, I'm not the thought police, I'm not the language police, I'm not the, the trans police, I'm not anything. All I'm, all I'm trying to say is, this is what makes me happy. Yeah. This is what makes me sad. And I understand that the same sort of things make other trans people happy and other trans people sad. These are the challenges we face. These are the things that we have to go through. These are the, the anxieties, the pressures that we feel inside. And if you can just kind of walk in our shoes a bit, you kind of get it. Yeah. But then you, all I'm asking you to do is think of the impact versus what you intended. Did you intend to hurt? Did you intend to say that? Or was it you just trying to be funny and you weren't, you know? Um, language evolves you know you look at some of the sitcoms in the 70s oh yeah we were doing with race with 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 uh, sexuality with trans um with a lot of different characteristics people look at those those bernard mannings those black and white minstrel shows they look at the jim davisons and they go oh how did we ever do that that's so people wouldn't even debate those conversations now but we're still happy to have the debate about trans it's like, well, okay, we, we've got to press pause. We've got to wait 30 years for it to look back and go, oh, why did we ever talk that way? And it's, we're, we're debating the trans rights of existence in the moment with the GRA reforms and other things. In the same way, people were, were debating the rights of people who are homosexual or gay or lesbian to exist. Um, people worried about catching gay, people, you know, conversion therapy, uh, if your child's gay at the age of 10, what's wrong with you as a parent? People disowning children. Okay, that still goes on. I'm not saying it doesn't go on. It's still awful. But we've come a long way since the Stonewall riots of the 60s, since homosexuality was decriminalized, and pardons have been given to people who are, who are gay, etc., etc. Trans is just playing catch-up. And all I'm trying to say is that let's look at history. Mm. Look at all the things we've come over. You know, if you've seen that film Hidden Figures about the black women who worked yes. in America's face, NASA, yeah. Look at the segregation that went on. Look at the segregation that used to happen in South Africa about black people, how those people were treated. And look at how women have been treated over the last decades and centuries and centuries about how women have to vote. Why women aren't capable of voting and making decisions. And then suddenly, well, why would we ever have said that? So it's no different to where we are with trans. It's just. It's not understood, no reference point. All I'm suggesting is people go, let's look at history and go, hmm, I kind of get that. Yeah, okay, I see it. I don't get it, but I'm prepared to bear with you. I'm prepared to learn. I'm prepared to understand it. And yeah, okay, let's, let's just do it. Yeah, let's figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it, to an extent, it's a generational thing. I mean, I'm, I'm gay and my mum is, you know, she struggles with it big time. And it's just so out of their, you know, sphere of... <laughs> I try my best, you know, I say to her, you know, it's not a choice. You know, it's not a choice because if it's a choice, you wouldn't make it because it's, it's hard, isn't it? Oh, no, no one says, oh, you know, no, no one wants to be trans for a laugh. No. You know, I, I fancy something to do this with, just be trans. But, <laughs> uh, you know, you don't tend to sort of put yourself out there and go, actually, I'm, I'm, I was only kidding. I was, I'm not really trans. I was a bit bored and this is what I <laughs> fancy. Yeah. yeah. But, okay, cool. So... Now, you mentioned about your, you know, we talked a little bit about your speaking and you mentioned about how you were president of the roundtable. And what I was curious about as well, because I want to sort of dig into your speaking a little bit more, is how I'm curious about how much of a difference it's made to your speaking in terms, you know, like, firstly, in terms of the quality and delivery, because I guess I'm imagining, and you may correct me here, that what you were speaking about at the roundtable possibly you were less passionate about than what you're speaking about today. So firstly, has that had an impact on, on the way that you speak, if that's true? Um, 
No, I think Round Table as a club, as a members club, is a is a very passionate. You know, the identity of a Round Table, a Round Table member called a tabler, is that once a tabler, always a tabler. It's, it's kind of this real ethos inside uh-huh. this club membership. So there's a very much a passion. And I was, you know, doing after dinner, a lot of after dinner talks. Um, so yeah, I, I did this all over all over the UK, Northern Ireland, um, over the world. I, I went to world meetings. I, so there was a lot of passion in those days yeah. as well. And so I've always been quite good at debating, coming up with logical argument and and balanced rhetoric, not just not just angry rhetoric, if you like, or uh, the new world polarized opinions. Well, that's, I think that's, and I think that's coming through, obviously, in the way, it, although you're talking about a different subject, that, that sort of being a objective and, and although being passionate, but not, you know, I had Simon Fanshaw on, on the show, who is also talks about diversity. And he was talking about how you can be passionate about something, but you shouldn't let that passion stop you from being able to empathize with what other people are thinking. And I think that's, yeah. that seems to be what you do as well. It is. Um, and, and then the, what I'm also curious about, so you did mention how you struggled initially, you know, talking about that PSA talk. And did you find it was almost like learning to speak in a different, in terms of the delivery, learning to speak in a different way, you know, because you were, you know, doing it in a dress, how much of an issue was that initially to sort of get comfortable? It was, it, yeah, the whole... Um personal identity it's you know we have imposter syndromes over a lot of things but when you when i first transitioned my imposter syndrome was was i trans enough was i woman enough Uh, is anyone going to take me seriously as a person forget the material this is way before the material of what i'm saying it's actually standing on the stage you know who is this person what what do they know am i going to get stoned you know the monty bison's going to I'm constantly thinking that's going on in my head. And as a as a trans person, one of the things in our manual we get out is is passing, looking, you know, blending in with society, becoming cis normative. You know, you don't you're not supposed to want to look trans. You're supposed to want to look female or male. Uh, you know, you're not meant to to stand out. That's like bad news if you're like a trans person. I suddenly realised that it didn't matter. I I I, I didn't have to keep. Once I let go of this body image issue, and as I say to people, people have issue with their body. Some people have issue with their breasts, they're too big or too small. Some people have issues with their bums, they're too big or too small. Some people want to lose weight. Some people hate their nose. Some people hate their eyebrows. Some people hate their teeth. And some of those people are trans. And some of those people aren't trans. So I just had to get to the point where I looked at them and I went, Actually, what's on the inside matters, how I feel it how, um, matters, how I'm treating matters. Yes, I'd like people to say, oh, wow, you look fantastic today, or oh, I love your smile, Joe, or oh, what have, you, what have you done with your hair today? But those are the conversations I like. And I suddenly realised that people look at people. If you walk around the supermarket and there's a really tall person, people look at the really tall person. If there's a person in a wheelchair, people look at the person in a wheelchair. If there's a person wearing tracky bottoms and looking really scruffy and smelly, people look at them. So I'm just a person that people may look at, but people look at people. And I think when you're different or not not common, people, you get hypersensitive to being looked at or you get hypersensitive or they must be laughing at me or they must be saying something nasty about me. You reframe it. So well, actually maybe what they're saying is, oh, that person's trans, she's great. Maybe they're saying that and not being nasty. So you, you stop looking for the negative. And when you stop looking for negative, you only find positives because positives just shine out. Out of a thousand interactions I have a day or a week, I'll get one reaction that's bad. So why think about the one? Let's try to think about the 999. And that's kind of how I go through it. So when I was talking about the speaking, I had to, I had to fix that, that problem first. I, I, had to, I had to believe in myself. And I, I, I often quote, yeah, if you don't believe in yourself, then nobody else will. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have to love yourself, then others can love you. So I had to love myself and believe in myself. Then it kind of didn't matter about my voice. And people actually say, wow, you've got a lovely voice. You know, it's a very, I don't even, when people meet me face to face, they don't even think about my voice. But the issue is maybe on the phone or when they hear my voice without seeing me. Or sometimes when I'm in a shop, if, if, my, if I have a conversation too long in a shop, the voice overtakes the visual image. 
in people's minds, and that's when the misgendering occurs. But generally, well, I've got I've got loads of female friends with deep voices, and they all say, "Yeah, I get misgendered as well." Or I've got a female friend who's as big as tall as stockier than me, with a fairly deep voice, and she's often getting told she looks trans or something. And I've got a, a, a very good friend who's black, and uh, she's got a really deep voice. And I didn't, I just thought, well, people have deep voices, and I'm just a person that has a deep voice. Mm-hmm. There are people who are tall, and I'm just a person that's a bit tall and average. There are people with big feet, and I just happen to have big feet. So rather than say I'm a trans person with big feet, I'm a person who has big feet. Some people do, some people don't. And that allowed me to sort of move on from this sort of like all about me. I'm just a person. So yeah, going back to the, the original question about talking, yeah, it was all it was all locked up in that lack of self confidence, that imposter syndrome. Was I a woman? I, I found it very awkward to say we, meaning we women. I found that really, really, really tricky to say because I kept looking around and going, "Is someone going to?" Someone going to give me a funny look for saying that. You know, am I am I allowed to say we? Have I earned my uh, my womanhood yet? Is, is, is that okay? Or are people going to look at me and go, mm, no, you can't use that yet. So I, start, I, I did it once without without thinking, and nobody burnt me as a witch. I thought, <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. It's all right. I've got it. I've done it. Oh, um, and and now I, I don't I don't feel embarrassed. So I, I I I I say we without thinking. And I, I and also I say they, meaning men. Yes. And uh, but I, I, I often, you know, yeah, as you can tell, I'm quite pragmatic and quite open for a bit of chat and, and, and witticisms. And I've had conversations with men at the bar and look at me go, yeah, but a couple of years ago, you're on the other side of the fence, you know. Now you now you now you're, you're taking this stance. You know, come on, uh, you know, let's into the secret. You know. why? What, yeah. How can you suddenly say this about men when you were one? Well, I said, well, yeah, I know. Poacher turned gamekeeper, isn't it? It's kind of, but I, I know how I used to think with other men. I know how men think. And I would say 99.9% of the time, it's nothing premeditated. It's this intent versus impact. People don't intend the impact. Uh, and men don't, men have privilege. White men have lots of privilege. White men rule the world. White men invented the world, effectively. And when you do that, you don't realise your privilege. You don't realise the impact of what you're doing. And when I try and enlighten people, I get, almost get typical privilege reaction, get shouted down, or get, or you're, you know, you sold out your manhood. You know, what right do you have to comment? It's like, right, so now you're bringing my gender identity. Oh, wow. How, how about we go back and just think about privilege for a second and, and the impact of the intent of your actions? Be accountable for your words. Speak from the eye. Don't speak from the we. You know, yeah. try, don't try and deflect what you're saying by by coming up with what about and evidencing it. All these sort of things. Just go. Okay, I I get it. I kind of get it. I I get it. Uh, so yeah, it is interesting changing your point of reference. Uh, it was very interesting losing privilege points from walking through the world feeling safe, feeling in the majority, from feeling. I, because I was running a business, I had some some level of power and authority in my business, and was used to being having twenty people that well, they worked for me. I'm not saying I was in charge or such, but I had I had influence over to be on my own to try and influence people in a different way, and losing. So I went from being a white, well, visibly cis, het white man, i.e top of the privilege tree in this country in the midst of the Western world to being trans no one's sure about the sexuality white female and it kind of that's minus 10 minus 10 minus oh I'm not sure it's it's got a couple of notches down isn't it yeah losing that, losing that privilege I, I, I realized that I didn't have the same authority in in even in chatting on Facebook, in Facebook groups, you know, people tend to just ignore me. And you can see all the men comments. And I chip in the middle and people just not, there's no likes, no comments on it. And then the, a man will comment before, everyone's liking it. Oh yeah, you're great, you're fantastic. Like, okay, well, I, I, I have to get used to the fact now that my voice needs a bit of amplification occasionally. Wow, that's really, uh, it's a really big insight that, isn't it? And yeah. I, it's, it's an, 
because I, I was thinking as well, when you, when you do go and talk to the audiences that you speak to today, you know that they're starting out at a different point, maybe having some of the sort of, you know, we'll, we'll say prejudices, some of the prejudices, some of the, you know, the negative things. How do you manage that? You know, how do you start off? How do you begin to win them over with your, with your talk? With my wit. <laughs> well, I thought it might be that because I have, you know, I have encountered your wit on, on at, uh, at one of the PSA meetings. So, which was another reason I wanted to get you on the yeah. show. But yeah. So, um, tell, tell me about that. Well, I like to take people on a journey. I think the best talks, the best learning, happens through empathy. I'm. There are lots of people who work on statistics and work on facts and figures, but if you look at any stat. Well, we just talk about stats here, and I'm hearing a stat. Was it people only retain 20% of the figures, facts, and figures that they hear in a seminar? Things, but they remember all of the feeling. How did you make them feel? How did they leave the room? What impact did you have on their on their sense of self? So that's what I, I, I focus on: is how do I make people feel? And I know I've given a good talk when everyone looks up at me during the talk and they're open mouth staring. Like, you know, imagine you pick up a cat by the scruff of the neck and just helpless. Uh, when people look at me like that numbed helplessness, I know I've kind of got them here. But the other thing I look for is someone come up to me afterwards and say, oh, that was so emotional, it made me cry. I think, well, yep, tick, I've, I've delivered uh, what I was trying to get to here. I, mean, I, I, don't, it's not, I don't mean trying to make people cry, but that's the emotional connection I'm trying to get. Yeah. So the journey I might take people on is, is talk about individuality how we are individuals, how we, we like to be different. But the human species is uh, a tribal pack. That's how we've developed. We, we like our safety. We like, uh, to have, we like to have our Arsenal and Tottenham. We like to have our Man United, Man City. And we're very good at creating these barriers around our community and fighting off the enemy because they threaten our way of working. They threaten our religion, our power base. Uh, so I like to talk about the tribe mentality, and then you, you start to think about first impressions, biases, cognitive biases, with some conscious stuff that kicks in when you first meet somebody. You know. So I, I talk about those sort of things. Um, but then I talk about inclusion and what it's like to be ex excluded. Because often if you talk about the pain, it, it, people relate to the pain. You know, and I, I just try and cast people back to this uh, when they're at school. An NPE, you have two team captains, and they start by picking all the all their favourites, all, all of the great people. Oh, yeah, you're fantastic. Come on, my team. And you get right to the end, and there's little Johnny, and you know he's he's pretty crap at support. You know, he can't do anything, and and both teams are going, "What, Miss? I don't want him. I don't want Johnny on my team. He's useless." Yeah, and oh, Miss, all right, Johnny, come on, my team. Get in goal and don't mess up. So who has ever felt like little Johnny? Who wants to be that person that is just barely accepted, doesn't feel like they've got a place in society, doesn't feel like they've got a place in the team, and they're just being tolerated and pushed into the corner and told not to mess up all the time? And that's what being excluded, that's, not, that's the opposite of being excluded, it's the opposite of belonging, and how you can make people feel. So through the impact of your words, the impact of your actions, and you exclude people, how does that make them feel? How would that make you feel if that was you, that was your child, that was your parent who's not being looked after? And that's where I try to take people. And then from there, trans is just kind of the mustard in the sandwich. It's just, yeah. it's just a different spice. We've got to think about everybody in that, in that same light. Why, we talk about labels, Stereotyping, and I often say labels for baked beans. You put labels on cans of beans because without the label, you can't tell what's in the can. You know, if you've got spaghetti hoops or baked beans, so you put a label on it. With humans, with, with society, we know what's on the inside. It's a person, and that person has feelings. That person has desires. That person has joy. That person has something to contribute to society. Nobody gets up in the morning trying to be an ass, do they? No, Everyone no. gets up in the morning trying to be the best person they can. And then these little micro things happen during the day that maybe make them happy or make them sad. 
So through our actions, through our intent, we can impact people negatively. So if we kind of get that, and we treat everybody fairly, everybody with respect, speak from the heart, speak from the eye, and value people, that's a great place to be, isn't it? And, and that's kind of, that, that's the basis of my sessions, my talks, and to, to take people on that journey. So they come out at the end of it going, yeah, it's that simple. It is that simple. Just, just treat people with respect and, and, and love them. Well, that's what I was, I was going to ask you, you know, when you do your talks, what's your mission and purpose and the one thing you want them to take away? And so for, if I've understood you, it's not about trans or, you know, lesbian or gay or, or black or whatever. It's about looking at people as human beings and individuals and yeah. how do, in our interactions with people, how do we want them to leave them feeling as a person? Exactly. I, I try to go to every conversation and I would like the person, you know, you know, you meet somebody, you walk away and go, oh, they were lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I want to have every conversation finish with, oh, Joe, she's fantastic. I like Joe. Uh, come and meet Joe. She's, she's wonderful. She's a great person. And if everybody went through life wanting people to say that about them when they left the conversation, that, isn't, wouldn't that be a great place to be? And so, yes, exactly what I'm saying. People are people. Treat everyone with just respect. Listen. Because most people will share what makes them happy, what makes them sad, if you talk to them. If you listen to them, they matter. If they matter, they belong. If you look at the suicide rates, why do people commit suicide? Often they say, it's because nobody cared. No, I didn't matter. I, no, if, if I was gone, no one would miss me. That's what people say. So if you don't matter, you're not listened to. Your mental health, if you're bullied, harassed, all those things contribute to your mental health. And people just want to feel respected and that is about being listened to and having a, having a value in society and i guess i guess you know there's people who are less confident less you know not well adjusted but less robust than you who in that situation on facebook where they're consistently passed over not liked not liked that sort of thing can push people over the edge even something as small as that i think you know what's happened to you since yeah. you've transitioned you know i think that's a you know that's just bearing that in mind you know when we when we do interact in all, across all platforms, really. I mean, I, I talk to people about microaggressions. You know, calling someone love, uh, calling a woman love. Well, what's wrong with that? I call all women love. They don't mind. It's patronising, okay. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I say, well, let's think about your, your privilege, your power, right? Let's put you in the middle of the page. So who do you call love? So you call your daughter love, maybe you call your wife love, maybe you call your friends love, maybe you call someone at work who works for you love. But would you call your boss love? Probably not. Would you call the prime minister love? No, probably not. Would you call your MP love? No. So would you call somebody who you perceive as being superior to you love? No, you wouldn't. So that implies you're using your privilege to decide the language you're using. So think about who you would use the word love to and who you wouldn't. And then if it's not appropriate upwards, why is it appropriate downwards? They, they think I'm having a go at them. I say, no, no, I'm not having a go at you. The impact of those words over time is that they're love. They're your love. You're patronizing. They're always going to believe they're beneath you because, they, because you've told them you're beneath me because of the language I've used to you. Therefore, I can never question you. I can never come up to your level. You're never going to treat me as an equal. Whether that's the word love or a whole load of other words we can use when people, we treat people. And that's so true, yeah. isn't it? We do it, but it's, it's, it's a subconscious thing. It's, you know, we all do it. We subconsciously cement our position in the hierarchy with the language that we use. You know, it's not, it's not conscious even, but it's just, you're just shining a light on these things to say, look, yeah. have you thought about it this way? Maybe, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. really powerful, really powerful. Yeah. What we do is we change our language based on the privileged person in, in the group. So when we're being inclusive in our language, we can actually, our grouping may not always work. So we've got to be careful about the context. And the study I read was, they did some analysis, you know, there's this advice about you should take aspirin to prevent heart attacks. Yes. But their survey was predominantly with men. And it actually turns out that women get no benefit by taking aspirin to prevent heart attacks. Only men. So by saying, We've done a survey of people. We didn't actually look at the, the gender demographic of that survey. Gosh. 
So there's a whole lot of things that we, if we're not careful of, we, we, we assume by using guys as a collective, we assume as people as a collective. Actually, sometimes gender does matter. Yes. Uh, in, in part of our gripping. So again, it's just thinking about our language, how we use it, and what do we really mean? And what's the impact of, of that? What could go wrong? So that's yeah. kind of part of the stuff I talk about, yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. okay, good. Right. I've got some standard questions, and I want to talk about how people can work with you uh, once we've done this. So first thing I wanted to ask is what is the best thing that speaking has done for you? Um, best speaking is done for me. It's given me a purpose. It's given me a platform. It's amplified my voice. It, so it's allowed me to have a message that I deeply believe in and it allows me to share that with people. So I'd, I'd like to think that as a result of someone meeting me, listening to me, hearing me, I've changed a life. I've, I've, I've given some people, someone some inspiration. I've made them think. Even if it stopped for 30 seconds, I go, hmm, okay, next time I'll think about that. So that's what I think it's given me. It's given me a, it's given me a, a, a voice that is loud enough for people to hear. Brilliant. Okay, cool. And what have you had, like, your worst gig? What's, what was the worst gig you've ever had speaking? It could be, it could be like it, it, when you were president of the roundtable, could be recent... Is there one that sort of sticks in your mind? Well, that uh, speaker factor at PSA was pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty cruel. Um, I, I, I've probably been over hard on myself. No one ever said it was that bad. But um, there was a couple of round table gigs where I, I told a joke. With hindsight, probably wasn't appropriate. Uh, to be honest, I can't even I can't even remember the joke. But it was a mixed audience. And it, it kind of died, and I, I didn't recover from that. And people actually came up to me after and said, no, that joke, no, it wasn't good. I went, oh. okay. So, yeah, that was, uh, it was in uh, north of Scotland, Ergin, I think it was. I remember that's the day I died that day. It was awful. And I did, I did it's called a double header. So I did this one dinner on the Friday night, and I did a big ladies' night ball on the Saturday night. And I had people come up to me after the ladies' night ball saying, oh, that was amazing, that speech tonight. If only you could have done that one yesterday. I went, yes, oh, well, I got it. I learned the lesson yesterday that that was not the joke. That was not the speech. And I think, I think sometimes it's just down to clearing ahead. Maybe you become complacent and you don't respect the audience. That's what, I, that's what I've learned is I, I need to feel that anxiety. I need to feel that pressure. I need to feel that sense of, important every time I speak now and maybe I lost respect for the audience that first night thinking I could just turn up deliver something it'd be fine and I think I was too much off the cuff and I was too I didn't respect and now for me I like to feel really really nervous I like to feel really really anxious because that to me says I respect the audience and it would, it would, it would really upset me if I if I failed them I, I want to be the best I can be you know I want to be Freddie Mercury at Live Aid, giving his best ever performance every time I stand up. And I want to give it, I almost feel like I, I've got to take my whole insides, my whole sense of self and throw it at the audience. They have all of me. If I don't come off completely drained, I, I think, and I've saved something for me, I feel like I should have given that as well. And it's, yes, that's, so I think the difference between the worst and the best is making sure I give all of me and have respect for the people that are listening. That's, that's brilliant. That's a great bit of insight. Okay, cool. Now, what's the one book you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Okay, I say to people that I don't read books and I, I don't know why, but I think it's somehow I developed a speed reading technique when I was a lot younger. And I find if I read a book, I don't absorb it. I just literally, I just skim it. I read a lot on my phone. I read a lot of blogs, a um, lot of DNI related blogs, a lot of HR blogs, a lot of uh, yeah, some of the stuff we talked about today. I, I consume lots and lots of content on my phone. And I, I figured out what it is. It's because the screen's only that wide. My eyes don't wander all over the page. Is there a really good article that you could recommend, That one that sort of really sticks out in your head, a blog or... Because I know you're a blogger yourself, aren't you? Yeah, I, I, write, I write some of my own content. I, I'm, I, I prefer guest blogging. So people interview me or, or I, I'll make some notes and they'll kick it up. Um, 
what do I what do I read a lot of? I, uh, a good friend of mine, Hung Lee, he has a curated email which he sends out every week called Brain Food. And so I read that every week and it, it, he has sort of like 10 snippets of information on a Sunday, which allows you to sort of like just dive in some of the key points he's found from the HR recruitment world. Uh, and I, I do read that every week. And I, I follow a lot of the links and read whatever comes up. Well, we'll check out, what is his name? Hung Lee. Hung Lee, uh, brainfood.com, I think it is. Brainfood.com. Yeah, there's another one um, you might like called brainpickings.org. Um, right. Uh, that, that sounds like a similar. Well, I'll put a link to Hung Lee in the in the show notes. Okay, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever had, and why? Um, was it advice, or was it just something I've picked up? Um, I would say value your network. Cool. Uh, networking is a it's a forever thing. You build contacts. I'm a great believer in sowing seeds, and you don't sow to reap you sow to sow and you, you keep sowing keep sowing keep watering keep revisiting keep saying hi so yeah it's kind of a pay it forward to kind of give without expecting receipt uh, and be generous with your time and be generous with your with whatever if you the things i struggle with in business i've overcome if someone says i'm struggling be generous you know offer to help because you never know one day they'll remember you and I, I don't do it for that purpose it's just i just think it's a good thing to do be generous it's true it's a relationships yeah definitely that's it that's a good one and then you may given your earlier answer you may not have a have one for this but if you could have one mentor alive or dead fictional or non-fictional who would you choose and why okay um let me explain why i've always felt I wanted to be a performer. Um, I didn't realize this until a, a month or so ago. But it suddenly occurred to me that I had this, I always wished I could sing. And I did, I did a, a very limited amount of amateur dramatics at school. Puberty kicked in. I became self-aware and became very embarrassed and bright red at everything. So that curtailed my, my, my very limited acting. It made me scared. Just down on stage, made me scared. But I've always said this, I wish I could act, I wish I could sing, I wish I could play an instrument. And I think what it was, is I wanted to be on stage. Now I've figured out that my singing and my instrument is me. I can talk and get on stage and I can, I can be, I can, I can have that presence and give people that feeling that a musician does or a singer does or whatever. So I'm going to say the person that inspired me and it, it dawned on me the other day when I went to see Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, I mentioned Freddie earlier. He did. Because looking at his life story, looking at what he did, how he came from effectively nothing, invented himself and said, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to just make it happen. And I thought that's so similar to the attitude that I've had over the last two years almost you know, it's just going to happen I'm going to do this and when he was on stage he wanted to give all of him to the audience it was about how they felt about how they sang along to his tune and if I could touch people in the same way in some small way in a similar way yeah so Freddie Mercury brilliant I thought I thought you might because you mentioned him. I thought he might pop up again. It was obviously yeah. you know that you you obviously sort of got got him up there. Brilliant on the pedestal. So that's that's a kind of cross gender thing, you know. But I'm a fan of Taylor Swift as well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, there you go. Two good, two great mentors that you could have. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Jan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you and to sort of see things through your eyes and i hope that it's helped a lot of people to start you know just maybe thinking a little differently about you know things and if people do want to book you to speak or to get you to to do a workshop what's the best place for them to go uh you can drop me an email at joe jo dot lockwood l-o-c-k-w-o-o-d at C change happen that's s-w-e change happen.co.uk
And that's the website is Sea uh, Change Happen. Uh, yeah, isn't my it? website is seachangehappen.co.uk. Or you can look me, look me up on Twitter, Joe underscore Lockwood 1965. Or if you search me on LinkedIn or Google me, I think I appear fairly fairly regularly on the first 10 pages of Google, just Joanne Lockwood. Brilliant. And I'll put all of the links to all of that stuff in the show notes as well. And there's some, some interesting blogs that you've written as well on Sea Change Happen, so people yeah, should check. Yeah, check I'll do some, do some video content if you want to look at some of my keynotes. Uh, or look at some of the, the articles. Uh, I've got some little bite-sized videos if you want to digest some, uh, some just some what to see me talk basically. Yeah. <laughs> see, see what they're gonna see what they're gonna buy when they <laughs> when they get yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Wicked. Well, it's as I said, it's been a pleasure. Good luck. Um, continuing to get booked for those big stages and and start to to you know really make that message uh, get out there powerfully. And uh, really lovely to have met you and lovely to have spoken to you. I'm sure we'll bump into each other soon, no doubt, somewhere. Yes, we will. We will. Thank you very much. No worries at all. What an amazing attitude. I just love the way that Joanne reframes the stuff that many of us would automatically put a negative spin on. And being able to override that negative voice and see the positive is such a powerful tool for helping us to fulfill our potential rather than sort of hiding in the shadows of our limiting beliefs. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show and the interview and maybe you learned something new. Certainly what Joanne has shared opened up my eyes on a number of things. Please check out Joanne's blog and if you can book her to speak, well, I think her message is one that should be heard. Okay, don't forget to book your spot on my training class if you want more clients and customers and you can do that at www.saraharcher.co.uk slash free training. Thank you again for listening to the show. Hit subscribe if you want to hear more. Please leave an honest review too. It means a lot. I love getting your feedback and it helps new people find the show. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more great content. So I'll catch you then. In the meantime, enjoy the frenzy of Black Friday and Cyber Monday and grow grab that discounted TV by the nuts and get Netflixing. Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club podcast at www.saraharcher.co.uk.